Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. And this fall award season, you know, we've always been doing all the big directors, but this year, when the opportunity permits, we're going to be doing some, quote, below-the-line talent, the... Who better than to be our first cinematographer guest than the great Roger Deakins? Um, I just want to say one quick thing. You know, editorially, when we do this, I pick the films that are worth, and the filmmakers that are worth doing the craft and process to break down for about a half an hour. And uh, that really is, you know, we get offered bigger films. We get some offered some Academy Award films. And uh, the editorial really choice is really which ones are worth I'm interested in breaking down because I think you'll be. I just say that as a full disclosure because this film's a little different. Goldfinch is wonderful. Roger's work on this is wonderful, but I feel like I do need to put out there. Uh, my wife worked on this film for two years, and uh, so <laughs> I feel like I needed to put that out there just because um, it's I can't be 100% objective. We have a goldfinch hanging in our living room, <laughs> and and my uh, baby was born in the middle of this production. So it's hard for me. It's hard for me to pretend that I am 100% objective. Although I do love this film, Roger. Um, I'm curious. You've said before in interviews that uh, you know it's obviously the script that you really react to. But my sense is it's it's a story thing even more. Obviously, you're a visual person, but. It really starts in a story script level for you. Is that is that correct? Oh yeah, definitely. The story, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the story and the characters. I mean, yeah, it's probably the characters probably more than the story. I like feel what happens to characters really. And what was it about the Goldfinch for you? Was it the script or the book? Uh, I read the book before the script. Um, the story attracted me to me. Uh, the story, I mean, was yeah, it's kind of a personal thing, but uh, the 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 child losing his mother like that was kind of personal to me. Apart from anything else, it was uh, drew me to it initially. So, so even before Warner Brothers and John, you know, John's been attached to this for a while. You you had just been a fan of the book, right? Is that, is um, that? well, my agent sent it to mm. us. Actually, I think that's what happened, and said that the, they thought thought this one particular book of Donatart's might get greenlit into mm-hmm. a film. Yeah. When you when you think in terms of these stories, are you instantly thinking, and are you a cinematographer that works in terms of how um, your lighting and the camera is going to arc with the story? Are you thinking more in terms, like is this instantly, in terms of how you want to help tell the story, are you thinking in, terms, in that terms? Because I know some cinematographers are more just reacting to scenes and places. Are you thinking big picture, right, kind of right from the start with this? <laughs> no, I'm reading it like I would read a book. Um, or I, well, I read a, read the book or read the script just as I would any story and try and understand the characters and, you know, what it was about. I don't really think that much about it, a film visually until I've had a chance to talk with a director. Yeah, I have, I have ideas come through, but I don't want to be locked down because, you know, a director can have a totally different understanding of what a script is you know two people reading the same script can can totally different take on it i remember working on one film once and with a, with a particular actor and he was like a a few days into his his uh, sequences 
And we were having a drink one night after work, and he said, I don't understand. I thought this film was a comedy. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, there was nothing like a comedy. It's like this serious film about, you know, FBI, whatever. Well, I shouldn't go into it, really. But it, it was amazing how somebody had read the same script, and it was way off. Is there ones that you walk away from because the director is seeing something so differently than you do? Yeah. There is. Yeah, that has happened, yeah. <laughs> and what... What were those initial conversations with John about with this with this film? Well, just about that, really, the whole feeling. I mean, John, when I first met John, John had a whole, um, he had a kind of like a catalog of images that um, a breakdown of the, the, the sequences of the film, the feel that he wanted in it. And he said, you know, this is not something we don't want to reproduce these images. It, it just kind of represents a sense of what I'm feeling about this film. And we just started from there, really. I mean, he'd been working on it so long. He was so prepared in this, in his mind. Had, um, But nothing actually locked down. That was what was kind of nice about it. One thing that I noticed in watching the film was, um, you know, in this beginning of this movie, what happens to the Anzel um, character, it, you, you want to, well, I guess initially it's the uh, younger actor, but you, you want to give this kid a hug, and there, you, you feel this need for emotion that is restrained. And I, I believe the interpretation is that, you know, this kind of restrained emotion is kind of carries into adult Anzel. And what struck me was is that, uh, and I'm wondering if this is something you and John talked about or how you strategize, but that sense of kind of restrained emotion seems to have somewhat defined how, how this movie was shot, and that's to try to capture that feeling that's kind of bottled up inside this character. Am I wrong about that? No, I mean, I, definitely that's what it is. I mean, yeah. Um, I don't know how to talk about it, but yes, it's... It's restrained. I mean, I certainly was aware that, well, there's two things, you know. Um, it's talked about, Donatart's work's talked about as though she writes in a sort of like Charles Dickens kind of way. But so I was thinking, well, yeah, but she's not writing visually as Charles Dickens. Like, it's not Victorian in a visual sense. That's in terms of character development and story arc or whatever. And, and, so that on the one hand, you don't want to go that way because that's kind of kind of cute and you know, um, Oliver Twist or you know, you know what I mean. Uh, and on the other hand, you, you don't want to, you don't want to embellish it. You don't want to make it obviously too active camera-wise because that's going to distract. It's a film about characters. It's actually a film about performance first and foremost. Mm -hmm. It's not about cinematography. It's it's about capturing those four, the, the, the honesty of the performances and the characters that those actors are trying to uh, uh, portray. So um, that's, yeah, it's the simplicity of it, I think, was really important, you know? And one thing that I noticed, and I, I, I don't know if I'm right about this, but there is this moment in the Las Vegas part, you know, there's a dramatic scene and then there's a drug thing. And it was at that point I realized that everything that had come before, this was very restrained, almost subtle cinematography. 
And there's this wonderful kind of little explosion of color, and it becomes, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I, I hope I'm right in that interpretation, but there's almost this kind of release that's matched by something that you're doing in those scenes, especially in terms yeah, of color. Yeah, I mean, John talked about that, the idea that he goes to Las Vegas, and then it's like, you know, in a way you're trapped by the world that he's in. You're trapped by the house, trapped by the environment, by the heat of the sun. But then there's this character, Boris, you know, and that's the first time that really Theo kind of kind of loses it, really. He opens out. He just kind of lets things go. Yeah. So there's there's a bit more, I wouldn't say life comes into it, but it's a bit more kind of chaotic, yeah. Your palate maybe expands a little bit, right? A little if bit, it, it a little bit, yeah. I mean, yeah. And... I'm wondering if, moving backwards, is there a sense, maybe we could even just start in the barber home. What is, you know, so much of this film is about objects and, and space and, and, and the way that the, these objects and these spaces define these characters. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your collaboration in this film with K.K. Barrett, the production designer, because there is something so tactile, tactile and something so important in terms of how these spaces and these furniture and the objects are, are filmed. And we can maybe start with the Barber family and then move over to, um, what is the Jeffrey Wright character's hobby? Hobie, Hobie. his shop. But I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about that collaboration and how you get a certain feel or texture, or something that, that, that gives these spaces and these objects the, the weight they need. I think the most important thing is actually deciding on the choice of locations and whether you're going to build a set. And in the end, to Hobie's in particular, the f initial first time I went scouting with KK and John, the initial choice of that antique shop was like a semi-basement already. You go downstairs, like a lot of New, New York, New York, shops they're sort of set down a flight of stairs and they're slightly below the pavement level which kind of made sense in the in the writing of it but was like death i thought photographically um and then one day i'd been walking around i saw this other place and we were in the then the next day in the van together driving by this same place and i said have you thought about that and they said well we scouted that maybe we should look at that again and it was a restaurant, but so instead of the, so the antique shop was, which is what we ended up shooting in. So the antique shop was on just above the level of the sidewalk, but then there were stairs down to a door that were under those stairs that went into the antique shop proper. So you got the best of both worlds. You know, you got the sense, because I knew there would be these scenes in the shop, then you wanted to see the street beyond. You didn't really be boxed in. But you still got this sense when Theo comes back in the rain of going down and the darkness and the enclosure and that sort of frightening kind of element of him going down to press the buzzer. Um, you know, so it's things like that that develop when you're talking about the script and then looking at locations. The Barber apartment was originally going to be where it was meant to be, an apartment on Park Lane or wherever it was, Fifth Avenue or something. And we scouted a number of apartments, but one, you know, we're looking at them and they're not right. They don't really, they don't really express what this character, this, 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 what's written. Um, so there's that issue, but there's also a practical issue of that 
okay, so we're actually in the real place, but what are we going to see outside the window? If you want to shoot a 10-hour, 12-hour day, it's going to be dark most of that time, and some days it will be so dark you won't shoot much anyway. So just practically, you can't light it from outside. They won't. You know, anyway, so you can't be in. You can't be yeah. in Fifth so Avenue. Said, well, and I, didn't, all the I don't feel there. I didn't think the exterior was important to see. It wasn't saying anything to for the characters. It didn't matter. The cu curtains are closed. John was saying, well, curtains should be closed most of the time. It's just little chinks of daylight coming in this this kind of space. So, so we decided then. Okay, we could. There was a house we could shoot in upstate. Uh, and make it look at, like an apartment, and that way KK could do all the decoration and the wallpaper he wanted, and everything could be actually exactly what he wanted to do design-wise, and it was much more you know, practical in certain terms of shooting it. On the other side of it, they had, because of production, really because of cost and um, practicality, we weren't really going to go to Amsterdam initially. and. And so the Amsterdam hotel room was going to be a stage set or built in a warehouse in Yonkers. And I said, well, how does that work? Because the whole sequence has got to be Theo in this hotel room kind of cracking up and then ending up taking pills trying to kill himself. And that wants to take place over a certain amount of time. So to get the time passing, you want twilight, you want the light changing, you want night, you want John wanted snow coming down. See, you know, that's got to be location, surely. And, and, and John absolutely agreed. And he said, I don't, don't understand how we can not do that on location. So, so that's how things develop. And then KK found this wonderful apartment and said, well, I can make it look like the hotel room I really want. I don't have to shoot in a hotel room in a location somewhere else with no view and I can't paint the walls. He could do what he wanted in this apartment. So that's how it all sort of develops, you know. Yeah, and that sense of the world beyond the frame, you know, it, it's even though you're obviously in, um, thinking back to that workshop, obviously you're in a kind of basement environment, but that sense of a rainy East Village in that world, it's so important to feel that in the, in the, in the, in the frame and in the composition. Yeah, and, and well even, the thing is... a sense that, of light too. Yeah, well the, the basement that KK built was based on a basement we had chosen and looked at on location but I think we couldn't get we couldn't get permission to shoot there or it was way expensive or it was uh, and as well it was impossible to rig lighting wise so KK basically built the same thing on stage but ad adapted it to better suit what what our purposes were so it was a great way of kind of finding something real and then mm -hmm. making it you know as a, a as a something that was more practical to shoot on. Um, so that's, that's how most of it evolved, really. But then, you, you know, you say you get the feel of New York and the rain and all that, but that's only done because there's a couple of exteriors of the shop. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you don't see out. You're in Hobie's kitchen, you're in Pippa's bedroom, all in the same place. They're actually different locations, you know. One is the basement is a set, the um, the antique shop proper that he goes in and the stairs he walks down and that, that that's another location which was a restaurant that was changed around. Mm -hmm. The upstairs at Hobie's kitchen and Pippa's bedroom and um, uh, Hobie's 
uh, not Hobie, the the other bedroom downstairs, the, the adult theatre's in with Pippa later. Um, that's another location, Bever Stuyvesant, miles and miles away. You know, so it's all like, you know, um, mishmash of different things put together to create the whole. There's not much exterior. The exterior, I never felt the exterior was very important to these other rooms, mm. but it was important to the actual antique shop. So, you know, you kind of like focus on what you really need and then, you know, it's just a logistics exercise, really. And, and what about, we talked briefly about Vegas, but I'm wondering, it, it's, it's, um, it's such an, no, it's okay, we're all set. It, it, it's such an important place in terms of um, the story point and it's obviously such a dramatic change in, in landscape. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, just that that sense of the space and the frame, but also of color and and, and what you were trying to go for visually there, because it, it, it's it's very um, it's impo it's important that it's so stark and different, and in terms of what's going on with that character at that time. Yeah, you know, it's definitely um, that was again a choice of locations to find this house right on the edge of nothing. At the end of a road with a stop sign and stuff and all that, and we we talked about it. I know John was a bit concerned. Maybe it was a bit cliche that it was the last house on the block, but then we felt well, we we're only seeing it a couple of times in that way, so we chose that exterior. And then the interior is somewhere else because we needed a connection between a room and a swimming pool, mm -hmm. so we chose another house that was just a mile away, and then um, then there was Boris's house with the empty swimming pool and that existed we hardly changed it apart from taking a couple of trees out of the backyard to make it look even more brutal um so again i say the choice of location is really important um and john wanted the kind of feeling of the harshness of the light and the color the blue sky um and they're sort of quite saturated colors especially as um a relationship develops between Boris and Theo. Was know. there was there a trick of how you got such? I mean, part of it is is that there isn't that many saturated colors prior to this point. Was it was there an element of of shooting at a certain time of day? Was there certain things that you did to to get those colors of Vegas? Well, I like, uh, the, a lot of the exteriors, um, you know, the exterior of Boris's swimming pool, you know, where they're sitting drinking beer, had to be a particular kind of day because type time of day because I wanted a particular angle on the shadow that they're sitting in so mm -hmm. you see this shadow over the swimming pool and uh you know so yeah we i mean anytime you're doing exteriors i kind of like to go through uh, the schedule and kind of work out what time of day you want to shoot those at um the interior is different because you're shooting on location and and that was much more about creating my own sunlight and cutting out the real sunlight because um, the location we were in was, I mean, you couldn't do anything about it, but it was like facing uh, facing southwest. So, you know, the sun was flat light in the pool in the morning and backlighting and coming into the kitchen in, in the afternoon. So neither which was kind of good. So you have to structure the shoot around what the sun's doing and then recreate your own sunlight, you know. The um, explosion at the at the Met, it's um, it's lots of dust and and images that are just so slight. Um, and and I'm wondering, 
first off, I'm wondering how that was done. I'm assuming I'm, I'm assuming you didn't have to create the dust, but you're working with the person that's creating the dust to, to figure out what you can see. But that sense of um, just barely seeing and a sense of, of where we are, um, it's so subtle that I have to imagine that the degree of control has to be has to be absolute because of what you want to see and what you don't want to see. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the big advantages of shooting with a digital camera and having a on-set monitor that's calibrated to, you know, calibrated to the final image, basically. Um, so you can, you can really judge very closely how much you're going to see in a, like the shadow of somebody. Um, that was that was really tough to do for for the actors for Young Oaks and everybody else. It was that was quite brutal. Although I mean everything was done with with um, you know um, with a proper material. We didn't use anything that was toxic or anything like that. But it's still pretty brutal to be in such heavy smoke, which we had to. And then uh, yeah, these just normal of, smoke machines. Is that what it is? Is it? Is it it's s- huge yeah. amount of smoke. Okay. I mean, we, it would take an hour to fill up the. It was a warehouse in Yonkers with a set inside it, and it would take a good hour to fill it up to be, be as thick as it was necessary to have. You know, and then, uh, and then it had to have some sense of particles falling, and and um, you know, you could have done them digitally, but it would have been you know hitting hitting somebody's costume that's a hell of a thing to do digitally so we had to have some sort of particulates falling and that was a sort of paper paper product that was also you know safe for everybody to be with but still not very nice to be in you know and what about in that sense of um you know i i I think a lot of people have seen videos and whatnot and and, in the work that you did a long time ago on brother where art thou where there's a digital post environment and the image is changed in post. But what digital is meant to you in terms of the evolution, my understanding is so much of it is, of that work is now up front, is you, you are in your dailies and in your image, that control is happening up front. You're not, your dailies aren't looking very much different than your... No, than exactly, as I was shooting film. I mean, Oh Brother, Where Out That was a kind of one-off in mm-hmm. terms of stretching the image. That I mean, it was, that was a very particular look mm-hmm. we were after. It wanted to be a sort of like painted postcard look. That's the way Joel and Ethan talked about it. So it had to have that kind of quality. Um, so that was just a technique we chose for it. I mean, I've not done anything like that since. Um, something like yeah, Goldfinch or any other film I've shot digitally. I just try and get as close as I can on the on the f- on the recorded file, mm-hmm. and then really the DI is, you know, um, is just balancing from shot to shot. Um, you may be changing saturation or, or, or contrast a little bit, but it's it's. Sort so you're of doing minor, some of that, you're really. doing some of that colorist work in production and pre-production well right? i'm not doing it i'm yeah. doing it with the light yeah, yeah. i'm doing it with lighting i'm not doing i don't want to alter anything on you the don't. camera and i don't my dit I, I now and again on a scene i'll look at something with a little less contrast mm-hmm. and then have that as a reference so i could take that to the di suite mm-hmm. but it's kind of minor thing I, i'm not stretching the image very much i'd rather get as close as i can with the lighting and then, and then, uh, yeah, do as minimal as possible afterwards. Because I think the thing is also that 
you're creating a file that the editor and director is going to be sitting with, you know, while they're cussing, and you don't want them to get used to something that's not what you really intended. It's it's just the same as shooting film. You would do dailies, you shoot your film, do dailies, and and time the dailies to be as close as you could get to what you what you thought the final result would be. In that element with the monitor perfectly calibrated on set, that is allowing you to be a little bit bolder, right? In terms, I think this film's a perfect example of like just slightly seeing something, right? And being able to just get something that's very slight and very subtle in, in the way that you're able to see it. There's a, there's a control and a confidence that you have, right? Well, I think it's more to the point. I don't have sleepless nights waiting, waiting for the lab report, really. No, it gives you a bit more confidence that, yeah. But the most important thing is you can have a conversation with a director about it and say, okay, this is going this far. And he can say, well, we could try a bit more, try not. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a director on a film when we were shooting film about a, a, a silhouette. And I said, you know, I thought this scene would be really nice. We could play them in profile silhouette. And I, I don't think we need to see their faces. He said, no, no, that's great. Silhouette with a, something behind that was really interesting and that, that worked for the scene. And we're sitting in dailies and the director says, yeah, but I can't see their faces. But I said, a silhouette's a silhouette. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want that misunderstanding. I mean, it's very, it was very rare. It was one case and it wasn't a big deal. But uh, you kind of, I love the fact that now you're on set with a calibrated image that you can have a, a dead straight conversation with a director about you know I think that's one of the great advantages of shooting digital really um, you know our readers are extremely interested and so I just need to build in a couple questions here because a few weeks ago this trailer dropped for 1917 and it was kind of like whoa I'm wondering is this a, a, a one thing that I've heard about this is that there's a sense of um, is there is there was there an attempt or is there a sense of trying to uh, almost at times to make this feel like it's one shot? Is is that? Can't I can't talk about nineteen seventeen. I, I it, it's very different than Goldfinch. I, I'll tell you that, and it's very different than Blade Runner as well. And I've just been so lucky to do three great projects mm -hmm. that are so different mm -hmm. at this point in my career. It's really great. I, I it's a very immersive film. I'll mm -hmm. tell you that, but I, I'm not going to talk about okay. the film otherwise. Fair enough. One question that is kind of building off what we were just talking about in terms of um, your process, and I don't know how much of this was in Goldfinch, it, it maybe applies to, to other films more, but that sense of what you're going to get, I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, we talked about your collaboration uh, with production design. When there is visual effects, it seems as if, I was just reading a whole bunch of stuff this morning, uh, thinking back on Blade Runner, but it seems as if that sense of that collaboration uh, with the visual effects and that sense of what the plates are going to be and, and how things are going to look. It seems as if that's something that, it, just like with the locations and the production design, you get very involved in and in, in, in want to be involved in because it's part of the visuals throughout, right? Yeah, I want to be. Um, sometimes sometimes uh, production don't want want me be involved so much. But I don't know why sometimes, but then I've always got involved. And, and, you know, because I don't know, the directors always felt that they wanted me involved. So I've always got involved in things. And, you know, like on 
Blade Runner. I wasn't for a while, and then I was kind of involved full time, uh, you know, in post, you know, looking looking at things, and 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 I was actually really wonderful because both. Denny in a studio said, well, if Roger doesn't okay it, then it's not okay. <laughs> so I was really blessed on that one. And I, it's really important because, you know, it's funny, but, you know, a lot of the times I'm on set and I'm doing something and I think, well, it's obvious. You do that, you put a longer lens on, you don't like that side and somebody's like that. But it's only obvious to me because that's what I'm thinking about. It's not, and, I, and I, I forget that. So when I'm on set even talking about a shot with the effects team and saying well I don't need this that that can stay as it is but it's back here I'd love something bright here to justify what I've done with the light here I think they're understanding it but half the time they're not really understanding it so until you've actually got an image and you can actually I do sometimes get a still frame and a photoshop on, on that still frame what I'm talking about and say no this is what I mean this is in camera, but we need this. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be really bright because otherwise that doesn't make sense. Until you actually have that image to reference, then they don't really understand half the time. Is this something like you using the Artemis where you get the picture and then you're drawing, you're taking, uh, you're literally taking a picture through the, the tool and then- No, I take a frame out of the movie and say, look, no, this is what I'm talking about and, mm -hmm. and, and Photoshop on top of it. It feels, it feels to me like it should be second nature because one can tell when, to be honest with you, even a non-Roger Deakins movie, but it, it feels obvious to me when a cinematographer is involved in these elements and they're not. Because they feel, they feel like they were painted on, they feel like they were added on and rather being... Yeah, that's the danger, it, you know, you've got one pair of eyes creating a kind of lighting and a palette on, on a frame and then that person goes, somebody else comes on. You know, it's like, you know, I don't know, I mean, two painters, you know, mm -hmm. Jackson Pollock doing an addition to a Turner painting. It's not going to work, is it? I don't think, mm -hmm. even though both are great, technically great artists. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not saying anybody's that, that's probably the wrong way to talk about it, but you know what I'm understanding? You're looking at one thing and somebody else comes along and they're looking at something else in mm -hmm. a different way. And, and, and I think you have to somehow, yeah involved I don't, I'm, I'm not sure my, my instinct is that maybe this is something that has to be something that you feel more but I you know I, I'm, I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about something whenever I see your films there's such a distinct sense of composition and exactness and yet and I've read interviews and, and, and so many times with you you often talk about how important your documentary background was and how much of that feel both in terms of uh, photography, in terms of of reacting to actors. You always talk about reacting to actors in space and stuff. And, and Goldfinch, I think, is a perfect example of this. There, there, there's very exact frames, beautiful frames. How much is the, is the balance of the planning and thinking about composition versus that being in the moment on set and finding it? Oh, yeah. Also, how much is it collaboration with the, the director? How much is the director doing that? I mean... I, how do you break it down? I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't consciously. I rarely consciously think of a think of a frame. I get a viewfinder there, and I'm kind of looking, or I will put the camera up, and I just adjust it on the dolly, or whatever. And and 
it's you know it's not something that it's kind of a conscious i'm going to do this frame so this is short-sighted and this this and the color that and i don't don't see things like that but you know what you do do is um you'll set the frame and in the back of your mind something's not right and then right before sometimes it's just a little adjustment and you go oh that's it mm -hmm. and it's true it makes a big difference mm -hmm. so it is to me, I think it's an instinctual thing mm. for you. Sorry. Yeah, but I mean, I think on a bit broader picture, there's a bit too kind of much of an emphasis on what I am doing, and mm -hmm. um, not enough on you know the whole project and a director. And I've just been really lucky to work with great directors. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's uh, so much of it is collaboration, and it's it's just that chemistry of different people working together isn't it you know just for the listeners uh, that voice that you heard was uh, roger's wife james who is a <laughs> vital right roger a vital yeah, part of no, the team I should say. A, part of, a vital part of my understanding is uh, yeah. my uh, a production manager of the cinematography is is, is, <laughs> is the, more than that more than that yeah it's a very important role um and uh, but yeah, I feel like maybe James would be the perfect interviewer for you. <laughs> she, <laughs> she'd, she'd get, she'd follow up and make you uh, <laughs> and point things out. But Roger and James, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we're really looking forward to. Um, oh, I, I always have to ask. Do you? Um, 1917 is going to come out. Goldfinch is coming out this week. 1917 sometime, I think. I don't know, November. Christmas Day. Christmas Day. They're not saying Christmas Day. Um, I, have you worked on anything since then? Or you got anything planned? Uh, we just finished 1917 about four weeks ago shooting. And, um, and you haven't done another one since? <laughs> no, I wish. No, I haven't got anything. If anybody's got any work out there, that would be good. Roger Deakins, <laughs> for hire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. I remember Freddie Francis once when he, went up, he accepted his off Oscar. He went up on stage at the <laughs> Academy and said, I've not got a job if anybody's got a script out there. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. Well, actually, you know, if we just, the thing about it is, is that you love these dramas, right? You love like something like this. It's got to be, you're obviously a, a, a celebrated cinematographer, if not one of the most celebrated. The, the movies that you love to do, there's less of these that have the money and the, yeah. and the budget, right? I mean, <laughs> Tell me about it. Compared yeah. to when you started, right? Absolutely. It's a different world. Yeah. It's a different world. There's, there's much fewer that middle budget range. I guess there's a lot of quite low budget films, thank God. Yeah. So people get to experiment and... Yeah. And then there's this huge tempo, big, big budget action movies and, you know, superhero movies. But there's less and less like Goldfinch. It's really sad. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again.